So when we were together last Sunday, we started a six-week journey toward Easter, but more importantly, we started a journey to help you take your next step toward Christ. And we're doing that by taking a closer look at the events and the activities that surrounded Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. So last week we started out by talking about Jesus' Last Supper that he shared with his closest followers. And last week we talked about what happened before they sat down to have dinner. We talked about the fact that Jesus humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet. But this week we want to dig a little bit deeper into the story of the Last Supper. And instead of focusing in on what happened before the meal... We want to talk about the actual meal that Jesus and his disciples shared together that day. So what did Jesus and his disciples eat, and why did they eat it? Well, the first thing that I want you to know is that when Jesus and his disciples got together that day, they weren't intentionally gathering together because they knew they were celebrating Jesus' Last Supper. The disciples had absolutely no idea that within a matter of hours that Jesus would be arrested and executed. And they also weren't just getting together to share any normal meal like they may have at any other point during their time together. Jesus and his disciples, they're coming together to share an intentional meal. They're coming together to commemorate an event. They're coming together to celebrate something that had happened over a thousand years earlier. Now I want you to think about something for just a minute. I want you to think about this for just a minute. How many things that took place a thousand years or more ago, do we still celebrate today? How many things that happened more than a thousand years ago do we still celebrate today? Now, I've racked my brain over this over the last week or so as I've been working on the sermon, and I came up with exactly two things that we still celebrate today that happened at least a thousand years ago. The first thing that we celebrate today that happened at least a thousand years ago is Christmas. And the second thing that we celebrate that happened at least a thousand years ago is Easter, right? Easter and Christmas. Now, Christmas is the day that Jesus was born. Christmas is the day that God became one of us. That's a pretty big deal, right? And Easter, Easter is the day that Jesus was resurrected from the, from the dead. Easter is the day that God defeated sin and death once and for all. And that's a pretty big deal, right? So, it stands to reason that if, we are, if Jesus and his disciples are gathering together to celebrate something that took place a thousand years before they sat down to share that meal, that it probably has to be a pretty big deal too, right? Because let's just be honest, we don't celebrate anything for over a thousand years that isn't a big deal. So the event that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating that night, it's a big deal. It's an important event. It's something worth celebrating, and it's something that's been worth celebrating for over a thousand years. So what made that event such a big deal? Well, that day, more than a thousand years before Jesus and his disciples gathered together to commemorate the event, was the day that God freed his people, the people of Israel from 400 years of slavery. And that was the day that God's people started their journey home to the land that God had promised their ancestors from generations before. And that's that's a big deal. Because that night, that night, there was no doubt in the entire nation of Israel that God had reached out into their lives. 
That night there was no doubt that God had provided conclusive proof that God keeps His promises. God showed God's people that God keeps His promises. On the night that Jesus and His disciples were gathered together to commemorate. That's a big deal. Because from time to time, we all wonder how trustworthy, how faithful, how, how much of our faith can we put into God. But that night, God showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that God keeps His promises. That's a big deal. So there's no wonder that Jesus and His disciples had gathered together that night to commemorate this event, celebrating the day that God reached out into their lives, celebrating the day that God ended the suffering of their people, celebrating the day that God kept His promises. But just because it was a big deal what God did on that day doesn't mean it was actually easy to arrive at that day. Because remember what I just told you, the people of Israel, they had been enslaved for over 400 years. And for 400 years, their slave masters, the Egyptians, had took advantage of them and they had abused them. And the people of Egypt, they weren't going to give up their slaves very easily. As a matter of fact, there was no way that the people of Egypt would ever even think about letting the Israelites, the people of Israel, go until the Egyptians had suffered every bit as much as their slaves had over those 400 years. So that's exactly what has to happen in the story before the Egyptians are ready to let the people of Israel go. They have to suffer. They have to suffer in huge ways. So there are a series of ten plagues that will fall on the, the Egyptians before they finally release the Israelites from their slavery. So if you think back to the story of these ten plagues, we know that the first plague, the Nile River, the primary source of water for most of Egypt, was turned to blood leaving little clean water for the people of Egypt to drink. Then their land is infested with frogs, with gnats, with flies. Then their livestock starts to die off and boils start popping up all over people and animals. Hail falls from the sky, killing anyone and anything that doesn't seek out cover. Locusts swarm and destroy all of Egypt's crops. And after those things, after the Nile is turned to blood, after their land is infested with frogs and gnats and flies and their livestock dies up and they have boils popping up on their skin and hail is killing people off as it falls from the sky and locusts are swarming the land and destroying all of, Israel, all of Egypt's crops, you would think that that would be enough for the Egyptians to get the point. You'd think that would be enough for the Egyptians to say, we've had enough of these people, get them out of here already. Truth of the matter is, if, if it was me, I would have been going to the Israelites' houses and helping them bag up all of their stuff, and I would have been carrying their suitcases to the car, drawing them a map and saying, get out before things get worse. But it wasn't enough for the people of Egypt to let their slaves go. So there's one last plague that falls on the land. There's one last plague plague that left the people of Egypt feeling the same amount of pain and suffering that God and God's people had felt for 400 years as God's people had suffered and died under slaves in the land of Egypt. This final plague is the death of the firstborn sons of everyone in Egypt. All the people, all the animals, the firstborn sons would die. 
That is, the firstborn sons would die unless they did what God instructed them to do for their homes to be passed over. That's the name of the festival that Jesus and his disciples got together that night a thousand plus years later to commemorate and celebrate. We call it the Passover. Because the Passover is the day that God passed over the houses, the homes of the people of Israel. That was the day that God freed them once and for all from their slavery to the Egyptians. So what did they have to do? What did the people of Israel have to do to ensure that their homes would be passed over? Well, let me show you. If you've got your Bible with you, whether it's a printed one or an app on your phone, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Now, Exodus, it's the second book inside of the Bible. And Exodus, it simply reminds us of the story of how the people of Israel are freed from their slavery, how they exit Egypt. That's what Exodus means. It's an exit from Egypt and uh, the beginning of their return to the promised land. So in Exodus chapter 12, we're going to start reading together in verse 6. We'll hear the instructions of what the people of Israel had to do to have their homes passed over. That's what it says. You should keep close watch over the lamb until the 14th day of the month. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the houses in which they're eating. That same night, they should eat the meat that's roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over fire with its heads, its legs, its internal organs, and don't let any of it remain until the morning. Burn any of it that's left over in the morning. All right, so inside of this passage, we hear that the first thing the people of Israel have to do is they have to sacrifice a lamb, and then they have to take blood from the lamb and smear it over their door frames in order to ensure that their homes would be passed over. Then they have to eat this lamb that is, that is supposed to be roasted. They're supposed to eat every bit of it, leaving nothing over until the morning. But that's not all. They're also told that to go along with the roasted lamb, they're supposed to eat bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. So guess what Jesus and his disciples ate when they got together more than a thousand years later? Well, along with a few other elements that you can see up on the picture that's behind me this morning, they ate roasted lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. But why did they eat these things? Why did they eat these three items, aside from the fact that the people were told to do it back in Exodus chapter 12? Well, let's start with the easiest one for us to understand. We'll talk about the roasted lamb first. Now, the lamb is what the people were asked to sacrifice to God to have their homes passed over. So when they sat down and they, they ate this roasted lamb, they remembered. They remembered that God had saved them from the final plague, that they had been passed over when this final plague, the death of the firstborn son, fell on the land of Egypt. And they were also reminded as they sat and they ate this lamb that that was the night that they were freed from their slavery. That final plague is what convinced Egypt, and Egypt's ruler, the Pharaoh, to let the people of Israel go. So as they sat and they ate, this roasted lamb became a symbol, a symbol of God's faithfulness to God's people. But what about the unleavened bread, or the bread that is made without yeast? Why were the people asked to do that? Well, God knew something that the people of Israel did not know going into 
this Passover meal, going into this entire event, God knew that the ruler of Egypt, that the Pharaoh was going to decide to release the people of Israel from their slavery that very night. And God knew that the Pharaoh would move very quickly to allow this to happen, but God also knew that the Pharaoh was going to change his mind. So God knew that the people of Israel had to be ready to go at a moment's notice to clear out of Egypt, to be freed from their slavery to the Egyptians once and for all. God tells them inside of this passage of Scripture that they are to eat their meal completely dressed, including having their shoes on ready to go and their walking sticks in their hand while they're sharing this meal. That's how quickly these people have to be ready to get up and go. But what does that have to do with unleavened bread, bread without yeast in it? Well, when you make bread with yeast, it takes time for that bread to rise, right? Some of you are much better bakers than I am. I have no idea how you make bread, to be perfectly honest. But I do know how you use Google, okay? So I did a little Google search that asked, how long does it take for bread to rise? Now, some of you could have told me directly how long it takes, but Google says that it takes a minimum of 45 minutes for most bread to rise. So what God is doing by telling the people that you have to eat unleavened bread, God is saying, you will not have 45 minutes to wait for your bread to rise before you can bake it. God is saying to the people, you will not have 45 minutes to get yourselves ready. You will not have 45 minutes to find your little five-year-old's lost shoe. And if you have a five-year-old and you're getting them ready for school or church, you know what happens to their shoes. It takes 45 minutes some weeks to find those shoes. So wear your sandals when you sit down at the table. God is telling them, you're not going to have 45 minutes to find your favorite walking stick before you walk out of your home. You're not going to have 45 minutes to pack up your bags and get ready to leave the land of Egypt once and for all. You're not going to have 45 minutes to leave the entire life that you've built here over generations. You have to be ready to go. So by eating the bread made without yeast, the people of Israel, thousands of years later, are reminded of God's faithfulness to Israel, but they're also reminded of Israel's faithfulness to God. This unleavened bread is a reminder that the people of God trusted God enough that even after 400 years of being enslaved, they trusted that God could bring all of that to an end in less than 45 minutes. So they ate the bread, remembering that their people were faithful to God's promises. And that brings us to the bitter herbs. This is my favorite part of this entire meal. Not because I like eating bitter herbs, but because of the symbolism that's attached to this particular item. But in order to understand why the disciples and Jesus were eating the bitter herbs at their meal more than a thousand years after the people of Israel were freed from their slavery, we have to dig deeper into our sense of taste. We have to know the way that our tongues detect different tastes in our mouths. And there are five basic tastes that all of us can detect. We can detect the taste of sweetness. You know what sweetness is. Sweetness is having that nice vanilla ice cream cone on a warm summer's day. We can all detect the taste of saltiness. And we know what saltiness tastes like. Saltiness is like eating that nice, warm, soft pretzel out at the ball game and letting the salt just sink in to your taste buds. We can all detect the taste of sourness, right? Sourness is that flavor that you get when you suck on a lemon. And most of us choose not to do that, but that's the flavor that comes along with it. We can also detect the taste of savoriness 
or umami as it's sometimes called. And what that flavor is is the earthiness that you get when you eat something like a mushroom. There's just a flavor there that's very distinct unto itself. And the final flavor that we can all detect is the flavoring of bitterness. Bitterness is the flavor that you get when you drink a cup of coffee that is completely black, not with the cream and sugar and all that fancy stuff that some of y'all add into it, right? But out of all of these flavors, out of these five basic flavors that we, that we can taste, we are most sensitive to bitterness. We actually have about two dozen genes inside of our DNA that allow us to detect bitterness, which is way more than we have of any other flavoring. We have about two dozen genes that help us, that help make us so sensitive to this bitter flavor, far more than anything else. So why in the world are we so sensitive to bitter flavors as compared to sweetness or saltiness or savoriness or sourness? What is it about bitterness that our bodies have been evolutionarily engineered to taste? Well, we are so sensitive to bitterness because in nature, bitterness has historically been a sign of either poisonous plants that we're about to eat, or it's been a sign that the meat we're about to partake of is rotten. Okay? So we are so sensitive to these bitter flavors because it was a matter of life or death. If we weren't sensitive to the bitterness, we may have accidentally eaten a plant that we weren't supposed to eat and died off. We may have accidentally ate some meat that was rotting and decomposing, and it may have killed us. This is the reason why, when we talk about bitter flavors, that they are an acquired taste. You've probably been told someplace in your life that coffee is an acquired taste. Do you know why coffee is an acquired taste? because it's bitter and you literally have to convince your body that coffee's not trying to kill you, okay? I haven't been able to acquire that taste. I still think coffee's trying to kill me. Jumps out at me like nothing else. But because of this, because of our sensitivity to bitterness, these bitter flavors, they stick with us in a way that no other flavors do. They hang around in a way that no other tastes do. Our body creates these visceral reactions to these bitter tastes unlike anything else that we experience. So why did Jesus and his disciples eat these bitter herbs that night? Well, they ate it because these bitter herbs create that visceral reaction inside of us as human beings. And the bitterness that jumps out and stands out to us inside of those moments, that bitterness is enough to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. But that's not all. Because these bitter tastes, they may have lingered for a moment, but the bitterness of slavery did not last forever for the people of Israel. And when that flavor eventually dissipated and went away, they were reminded. They were reminded that the slavery that their people, their ancestors had endured, didn't last either. So these bitter herbs were a reminder of the bitterness of slavery that the people of Israel lived under for centuries. But the bitter herbs were also a reminder that God kept his promises and God set his people free. The bitter herbs were a reminder that God, God can be trusted. The bitter herbs were a reminder that God, God is faithful. The bitter herbs were a reminder that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. But 
But the people of Israel, they had to struggle to believe that God would always keep his promises when they spent 400 years living under the bitterness of slavery. And you know what? You may be struggling to believe that God always keeps his promises because of the bitterness that you have in your life right now as well. So this morning, I want to conclude our time together a little bit differently. And this morning, I want you to know not only that God keeps his promises, but I also want to spend some time reminding you of the promises that God makes to us. I want you to know not only that God keeps his promises, like he kept his promises to the people of Israel, I want you to know that not only will God keep promises to the nation of Israel, but that God will keep his promises to you as well, but I also want you to know about the promises that God makes to us all. So we're just going to hit on a couple of things along the way. We're going to put up some different scripture verses as we're wrapping up. And if there's one of these that jumps out at you, that really speaks to you, let me encourage you just to write it down. Not the whole verse, they're going to move too quick for that, but just write down where it comes from so that you can turn back to it someplace a little bit later on. That's what the sermon note section inside of your bulletin is there for. All right? So what kind of promises do we need? Well, maybe you're at a point right now where you're feeling run down, where you're feeling a little bit worn out along the way, where you're feeling physically, emotionally, or spiritually exhausted. If that's how you're feeling this morning, if you're feeling just run down and worn out, I want you to hear this promise that God makes in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. It says, God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So here's what I want you to know. If you are feeling run down or worn out this morning, call out to God. Call out to God and remind God of this promise. God, you promised that in the midst of our tiredness, when we're feeling run down and worn out, God, you promised that you will give strength to the weary and increase the power of the weak. Call out to God. Remind God of this promise. And realize when you do, that God always keeps his promises. Maybe that doesn't hit on you. Maybe you're not feeling run down or worn out this morning. Maybe you're struggling right now to make a tough decision in your life. It could be related to your personal life, your professional life, something else altogether. But maybe you're struggling with a decision that you need to make. And if that's where you find yourself sitting at this morning, I want to share this verse with you from James chapter 1, verse 5. James 1, verse 5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God. If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So if you're struggling to make a tough decision, you don't know which way to go, trust the giver of all wisdom. Turn to God. Turn to God for wisdom, because God promises that God will give us wisdom, and God always keeps his promises. Maybe this morning you're grieving over a loss in your life. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a career, the loss of your independence, the loss of something else entirely. If that's where you find yourself at this morning, I want to remind you of what God promises us in Psalm 23, verse 4. This is what the psalmist writes. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. 
So no matter how dark the valley is that you're walking through this morning, whatever it is you may be grieving over, God promises to be with you. To be with you through it all. And God always keeps His promises. Maybe this morning you're just facing an uncertain future. I think all of us sitting inside of this sanctuary can at least relate to that as a church. Facing an uncertain future like we are as a congregation. If that's where you're at in your life, I want you to hear these words from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. It's what it says. The Lord himself goes before you, and he will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Man, what great words if you're feeling uncertain. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. There is no future you can go into that God's not already in. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. What a great promise from God. No matter how uncertain our future may seem, God promises to be with us. And God always keeps his promises. Or maybe you're facing something else entirely in your life right now. Regardless, regardless of the bitterness of that you have in your life right now, God still makes you this promise. It's found in Isaiah 41, verse 13, where it says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. No matter where you're at in life right now, whether you're on a high peak or a low valley or someplace in between, God promises to take hold of your hand and to help you. God promises to take hold of your hand and to help you. And God always keeps his promises. So here's my challenge for you. Not just this week, but throughout the remainder of the season of Lent as we continue to move closer to Easter Sunday. I want to I challenge you. If, that if you want to take your next step to grow closer to Christ, I want to challenge you to stand on the promises that God through Christ makes for us all. Regardless of what bitterness you face in your life today. I want you to stand on these promises you've just heard. Or maybe you, there was nothing in here that hit exactly where you're at. Well, this book is filled with promises that God makes, okay? I just hit a couple of them to keep the sermon a little bit shorter, all right? Dig in. Find these promises and stand on the promises that God makes to us all. Because when we stand on the promises of God that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living Word of God you shall prevail if you stand on the promises of God. Let's pray together. God, this morning we thank you so much for the promises that you make us. Promises not just in the good times, but especially promises when we're struggling, God. When we're facing difficulty. When we're experiencing bitterness in our lives. So God, my prayer this morning is that you help each of us to hear these promises that you have made to us. Whether we're experiencing bitterness of uncertainty or grief or whatever else it may be. Remind us that you promise to be with us always, helping us along the way. And God, let us put our faith on these promises. Let us take a stand on these promises. 
and rely solely on you instead of anything else. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.